Hello, and welcome to Sobercast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting Sobercast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. Hi, everybody. James, alcoholic. Wow. What a... Man, let me tell you, I am so happy to be here, I can hardly stand it. I got, I flew in last night, and I woke up this morning, and what an amazing day we had today, and here I, how does it happen that a guy like me from Florida, actually I'm from Illinois, I'm going to get to that, ends up in uh, Ocean City, Maryland, at the ocean for a week, it's unbelievable. You know, all you got to do is get drunk a lot, and get sober, and this good stuff happens to you, I guess. Yeah, I'm from Florida, but I'm, I just moved to Florida five weeks ago. Yeah, I'm from Chicago, Illinois, over by there. And uh, I moved to Florida five weeks ago. Why for a girl? I reckon I'll get to that later. We'll see. Uh, <laughs> she is one of my favorite things to talk about, so maybe I'll talk about her. I don't know. I never really know what I'm going to say when I do these things. I typically talk about my first drink and my last one, but uh, other than that, I don't really know what to say. Um, All I know is I'm very, very grateful to be here. So thanks to Popeye, wherever he is. He uh, is the guy that I spoke to on the phone, and also uh, I know that something like this is not put together by one guy, so I know there's a whole committee involved, so if you have anything at all to do with me being here, thank you very much. Wow, okay. i got to start talking. Here we go. So I am an alcoholic. My sobriety day is January 3rd, 1984. My home group is the Evanston Group, and we meet in Evanston, Illinois. So there is the weird thing. I live in Florida. My home group's in Illinois. Yeah, it's kind of complicated. Um, and I have a sponsor. And uh, those three things, sobriety day, home group, and a sponsor, very important reasons why I'm sober today. But I'll tell you, the, the reason why I'm sober is not because of those three things. It's because of a loving God who works in my life. And uh, he got me sober on January 3rd of 84 and has kept me sober since. And I'm very grateful for that. Uh, I should never have drank. <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. should never have drank. I had every reason not to drink. Here's why. My mom's an alcoholic. And my mom, uh, I was 14 years old when my mom hit her bottom. And uh, we were living in Bedford, Texas at the time. And her bottom was pretty low. She was, her story goes like this. Uh, One day in early 1977, this was, I don't know, maybe February or March, somewhere around there, she she liked to drink and she liked to take pills. And the reason she liked to drink and take pills, I believe, has a little bit to do with me. (laughs) It started when, uh, after she had uh, my brother and I, she would... uh, start to drink a little bit, and she went to see a doctor, and the, she, the doctor determined that she, uh, she had a nervous condition, and I think I had quite a bit to do with that nervous condition. Uh, she had a bit of a, a problem on her hands, which was me, and there was my brother as well, and so she went to see this doctor complaining about a bit of a nervous condition, and he said, here, take these, and so she began to take pills and drink uh, a lot of vodka from the time when I was very young. And it, uh, her disease progressed to the age of 14. I was the age of 14 in early 1977. And uh, what happened was she got a bottle of pills and a, uh, a bottle of vodka, checked herself in the hotel, ate those pills, drank that bottle of vodka with the intent of killing herself. And what happened was is her friend was uh, had this strange need to go look for her and found her in this hotel room called the paramedics paramedics showed up uh took her vitals and she was flatlined in the uh in the uh ambulance on the way to the hospital they resuscitated her and 
She got sober shortly thereafter and has been sober ever since. So it didn't quite take that day. She, um, you can clap for her. She, uh, strangely, uh, flatlining in an ambulance was not her last drink, strangely. But her last drink came in April 1977. I had every reason not to drink. I was a 14-year-old kid, and I saw what happened to my mom, the alcoholic. And she went to treatment at a place called Center Hospital in Dallas, Texas. And Center Hospital had this thing called uh, Family Day. You guys heard? You've heard of Family Day, I can tell. What is Family Day at a treatment center? Well, the family comes in, and the therapist begins talking to the family. So let me describe my family to you. So there was my mom, the drunk, my dad, who had been going to Al-Anon and was, uh, he got quite a bit of Al-Anon fast. And then there was my brother and there was me. And this therapist began to talk to us about uh, mom's alcoholism. I guess the point of that whole thing was to tell the family about alcoholism and kind of help them, you know, uh, understand mom. So they started, this therapist sat there and began to describe alcoholism. And here's what I heard her say. She said, alcoholics, and she described in a general way what alcoholics were. She said, alcoholics are folks who are uncomfortable in their own skin, who uh, feel less than everybody around them, which requires them to act in such a way to be better than everybody else in the room. Alcoholics are folks who get ideas in their mind, and those ideas never leave. And uh, alcoholics are folks that always look outside of themselves to fix themselves. Anybody relate to any of that? Well, I did. I was 14, and I related to that, and I'd never even taken a drink. And I began to go, man, it's getting hot in here. You know, <laughs> start describing what an alcoholic is, and I'm relating, and I'd never taken a drink. And... Uh, then she said something really important. Now, what she said, I have never found in any conference-approved literature in Alcoholics Anonymous. So I don't know if this is true. But uh, I don't even know if she said this, now that I think about it. But I will share with you what I heard her say. Here's what I heard her say. She said this. If you are a child of an alcoholic, you have a 50-50 chance of being an alcoholic yourself. That's what she said. I don't know if that's true. But that's what she said. And I sat there, having just learned what an alcoholic was and relating quite a bit at the age of 14. And I looked at my brother. It's just my brother and me, right? I looked at my brother, and I looked at me, and I said, it ain't him. I can do the math. 50-50, not him. It's going to be me. So here I was at the age of 14, and I had two very important pieces of information. One. Alcoholics who drink die, literally, die. Second, uh, if you drink, James, you're probably going to be an alcoholic. And that was really good information to have at the age of 14. I was given this information, and I uh, received what Bill Wilson talks about as, in our big book as self-knowledge. I had me some self-knowledge. And this self-knowledge was this, James, if you drink, you're going to be alcoholic. And if you're alcoholic and you drink, you're going to die. And I said, wow, that's great information. Thanks a lot. <laughs> now, I could, <laughs> let me describe to you a little bit about myself, uh, about the person who I brought to my first drink. And I can probably describe to you everything you need to know about me by this one story. And this story happened to me when I, I don't really know how old I was. I want to say somewhere between 10 and 12 years old. And by the time I was 10 or 12 years old, my mom's drinking had gotten pretty bad. And I remember this day like it was yesterday. <clears throat> I'd gotten myself up in the morning to go to school, and I walked in the kitchen. And let me kind of lay this uh, scene out to you. So I walked in the kitchen and there, uh, laying on the linoleum floor was my mom, passed out. There was a tumbler glass uh, laying next to her, spilt, and some clear liquid, I'm assuming vodka, was spilled out on the floor of the kitchen. And this was the scene which presented itself to me. Now imagine, you're a 10 to 12-year-old kid, 
You walk into the uh, kitchen. You see this scene. What would you do? I don't know what you would do. Here's what I did. I assessed the scene, and I said, okay, now this is going on. And what I did was I stepped over my mom, and I walked over to the cabinet. I got out the cereal. I got a bowl. I got a spoon out, out of the out of the drawer. I went and got milk. I put it all together, put it all back. Very important to put things back in my house. Put it all back, stepped back over my mom. I sat at the kitchen table, and I ate my breakfast. And that's what I did. Now, I don't know uh, about you, but I have a feeling that's not a normal reaction. And I believe at the age of between 10 and 12, that my reaction to life was not normal. And that I carried into my adolescence. And then I got this uh, piece of information at the age of 14. James, you're going to be an alcoholic if you drink. And uh, if you drink and you're an alcoholic, chances are you're going to die. And so I think I made a a very important decision at the age of 14. I'm not going to drink. Pretty smart, huh? I was a pretty smart kid. Let's see. Alcoholic plus alcohol, dead, not going to drink. And I didn't until I did. <laughs> you know. Because why did I drink? Because I'm an alcoholic. That's what we do. So uh, I should tell you about my first drink. And I love this story because, you know, only alcoholics love to recount the story of their first drink. So here it comes. I was uh, 15. And I started going to this school in Bedford, Texas called Ellie Bell High School. And um, I should describe to you the, the guy that I brought to my first drink. So here he was. So I was a guy who I felt, always felt less than. And I always felt different. And by the way, if you relate, maybe nod your head or something to know that, so I know I'm not alone here. I, uh, I always felt like everybody knew how to act in life, and I just didn't know. I felt like everybody kind of got together and figured out what they're going to do this day and how they're going to live their life, and I sort of missed that meeting, I guess. And I, I, uh, I never felt like I fit. I always felt on the outside. I felt unloved and unlovable. And I felt like everybody else had it together and I didn't, and that's how I felt. And I want to be very clear about something. <clears throat> All that stuff was not true. It was not true. If, you, if I was to be honest, looking back on my life at the age of 15, I was loved. I was so loved. I was loved by my family. You know, my mom, as sick as she got with her alcoholism, always loved me. My dad loved me. My brother loved me. There's people in the church, school, the neighborhood, everybody loved me, but I couldn't feel it was my problem. And I think one of the reasons I'm an alcoholic is because how I experience reality is not how reality is. And I experienced something very different than what was going on. And so here I was, 15, and I went to school this day. This day, like every other day, I felt different without friends, alone, et cetera. And this guy came up to me, and he said, hey, you want to come with us? And I was like, uh, I'll go with anybody who will ask me to go. And let me describe this guy. I think it's very important that I describe this. This is September 1977, okay? Imagine, September 1977. What was going on then? Anyway, so he, uh, this guy came up to me, and he had really long hair, a black concert T-shirt said Led Zeppelin on it, and very red eyes, all right? And he came up to me, and he said, you want to come with us? And I was like, let's go. I didn't know where I was going, but let's go. And we crossed the street. I was went to L.D. Bell High School, and there was, the street was Brown Trail. We crossed the street. Across the street were these woods. And there's a, we went into the woods. There was a clearing with these logs set up in a circle. And... Uh, we weren't the first group of teenagers, I'm sure, to, to uh, sit on those logs. And this guy uh, did what teenagers did in 1977, which we, he got these papers, and you know what I'm talking about? And uh, 
pass that thing to me. And I want to tell you, I had a spiritual experience. I did. I did, man. Now, I know this is Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm going to tell this story. I have to tell this story because this is how it happened for me. But um, what I'm about to describe to you happened every single time I drank. And that was I did what we did, and my entire life changed. Just like that, my life changed. I changed from a guy who was different and less than and apart from and friendless, friendless, to a guy with my best friends right here. I met him five minutes ago. Best friends. (laughs) And uh, I was somebody for the first time. And all those feelings I've just described to you just went away. And that chatter that was in my head quieted down. And the main thing was for the first time probably in my entire life, I could breathe. Breathe, take a breath. I was like, man, that was good. And I don't know if, um, if I made this decision consciously, but I certainly acted as though I did. And that decision was this, I'm gonna do whatever it takes to feel this way every day for the rest of my life. And that 14 year old kid, that previous April, who said, if I drink, I'm going to be an alcoholic, and if I'm an alcoholic who drinks, I'm going to die, Uh, that all went away. It's like, uh, what was I thinking? I thought that because I hadn't taken a drink yet, and when I took that drink, man, all bets were off, and uh, the next six and a half years, kind of a blur, but I can tell you it was was on. The scene was on for me. And I can probably count on the number of fingers on both hands the number of days between September 1977 and January of 1984 where I took a sober breath. Every day I was loaded. I had to be. I had to be. I'm an alcoholic, I think, for a few reasons. The reason number one is this, that uh, when I take a drink, I cannot predict what's going to happen to me. I like to think that I can take a drink and maybe two and then go home. Uh, But my experience is I can take a drink, maybe two, and sometimes go home. But sometimes I take a drink, maybe two, and three days later, I don't know what happened to the last three days. So that's just uh, how that works for me. The other thing is this, that when I'm not drunk, the only thing I can think about is taking that next drink. And... um, the doctor's opinion in our big book describes those two things very well. And that is I have this thing called an allergy of the body, which means when I take a drink, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if I can have one or not have one. And the second thing is, is that uh, when I'm not drinking, all I want to do is drink. And to me, that means this. Whenever I'm sober, straight, whatever you want to call it, the last thing I want to do is experience that. My whole uh, drinking history can be described as this, trying to experience something other than reality. Because my reality was just that painful. And I think that my reality was just that painful for one reason, that is that I have a a disease. And that disease is spiritual in nature. It kind of starts with me right here, right inside myself, right here behind my sternum is where I feel my alcoholism. And it's like I... It's hard for me to breathe, and it feels really tight. And I just can't take a breath, and my hands are clenched. I don't know if anybody else walked around life like that, but I did. Grinding my teeth, just making it just one more more minute, one more hour, until I can find that sense of ease and comfort that comes to me just by taking a few drinks. And that's why I'm an alcoholic. And I think the main reason I'm an alcoholic is this is that when I drank, what alcohol did for me was it changed my reality. It made my reality livable just for a little while. And that's why I drank. I just wanted out of myself. My life was, my insides were so miserable, all I wanted to do was get out of that. And alcohol worked for me. It worked for a long time, six and a half years. 
I don't have a lot of really fun stories, uh, mainly because I don't remember much of it. But, uh, <laughs> but I guess you could call me kind of a high-bottom drunk. And the reason why is because uh, a lot of things did not happen to me that happened to alcoholics. And uh, by the way, the fact that these didn't happen to me kept me out of AA for a long time. For instance, uh, I never went to treatment. Now, being a teenage alcoholic in northeast Tarrant County in Texas during the late 70s and early 80s, everybody was going to treatment. I never went, so I couldn't be an alcoholic, could I? I never went to jail. So if I didn't go to jail, how can I be an alcoholic? I never, uh, I never got divorced. Of course, I hadn't been married at the time. <laughs> the divorce thing came sober. Maybe I'll get to that later. Uh, <laughs> uh, none of these things happened to me. And I remember when my mom got sober in April 1977, she started uh, going to AA meetings. And she uh, said, you know, these kids need to know a little bit about alcoholism. We're going to haul them off to the Harbor Club in Fort Worth, Texas for some open AA meetings. So I'd go, and I'd hear these speakers talk. And here's what I heard every one of them say. I'm sure they didn't all say this. This is what I heard. To be an alcoholic, you got to get married and divorced a bunch of times. You got to go to jail. You got to wreck your cars. By the way, I never did that either. And you got to be homeless. And all these things is what makes an alcoholic an alcoholic. And I had none of those things happen. Okay, I was home. I lived in my car for a while, but I didn't call that homeless. All right, so anyway. Uh, and that kept me out of Alcoholics Anonymous for a while. But I'll tell you what kept me out of AA the most, and that's this fact. When my mom got sober, she began to come to, and she looked around, and she <laughs> looked at her youngest kid, me, and began to realize James has himself a little bit of a drinking problem. So she, she started to say things to me like this. Now, by the way, if you're an alcoholic and you got kids who are teenagers, don't say this to them. Okay, don't. Here's what she said to me. James, we're saving a seat for you in Alcoholics Anonymous. I cannot wait for you to get here. I got this great sponsor picked out for you. You're going to join my home group. We're going to trudge this road of happy destiny together. And I'm like, oh, Yeah. And I thought to myself, do you know who you're talking to? You're talking to me. And at the age of 14, of course, I was given this information. If you drink, you're an alcoholic. I was given self-knowledge. So I was given self-knowledge and this idea that the last thing I wanted to do was join mommy into come into Alcoholics Anonymous. So uh, I did not want to come to AA. And my defiance kept me out of Alcoholics Anonymous for a long time. I was intent for those six and a half years to prove to you that I didn't need this place. I didn't need you. You know, only losers go to AA, right? That's what I thought as a teenager. I don't believe that now, by the way, just so you know. Uh, But as a teenager, I believed it. Only losers end up in AA. And you think I'm going to need AA? Watch me. And then six and a half years later, alcohol, the great leveler, uh, did its work on me. But I want you to know, I did not want to come to Alcoholics Anonymous. So if you're here tonight and you don't want to be here, I want to say welcome, especially welcome to you. Because when I came to AA, I did not want to be here. So what happened? Okay, here's what happened to me. Uh, January 3rd is my sobriety date. It all started, on, I believe, on December... Th- it's all sort of hazy, but here's how it goes, more or less. December 31st, New Year's Eve party. I go and I get very drunk. And the next thing I know, it's January 3rd. Now, I am pretty sure about this fact. I'm pretty certain about this. On January 2nd, I was not an alcoholic. I am pretty sure about that. And the second thing, I did not want to be sober. I wanted to drink. Pretty sure about that. And then I came to on January 3rd, and a miracle happened. 
And what happened to me when I came to on January 3rd was two things. I realized for the first time, I saw myself for who and what I was. I saw myself as an alcoholic. That's miracle number one. And miracle number two, I wanted to be sober. Now, I don't know how that happens. I just came to, and that was, that was, that had, I had experienced that. And I believe it was, I like to describe it like this. You ever go to, like, hotel rooms? You know, it can be, like, in the middle of the day, and you take those big, thick curtains, and you close them, and it's, like, pitch dark, right? That's how I was living. And on January 3rd, that morning I came to it is as if God reached into my hotel room, stick with the analogy here, and just went whoosh with those curtains, and the light shined through. And everything was bright and lit up, and I could see it as it was. And for the first time I saw, James, you're an alcoholic, and if you keep drinking, you're going to die. And second, I realized I want to be sober. I want to be sober. I consider that a miracle. It just happened to me. Uh, and the, the great news that I share with you is this. I haven't had a drink since. And that was uh, January 3rd, 1984. Now, what happened to me was I believe this. I believe that God surrendered me that morning. And when I say he surrendered me, I don't believe I had anything to do with it. I don't remember any conscious decision to, that I was alcoholic, to stop drinking, or even that I wanted to stop drinking. I believe that moment I was surrendered. It was as if God just reached into my life and just took that out of my life, just like that. I didn't do anything. And I know a lot of folks. My, uh, my mom's husband is an example. And this is their story. This is his story. He went to Alcoholics Anonymous for weeks drunk. And they would say to him, as good Alcoholics Anonymous members do, they would say to him, Dave, we can't help you. You need the help of a higher power. Go ask God to get you sober. And he heard this message for weeks. One night he went home. He asked God to help keep him sober. And he's been sober ever since. That's not my story. I don't remember any conscious decision to ask God for anything that day. I came to. I was sober. I think it was a miracle. I thought, now what do I do? You know, it's like, I don't want to drink. Now what do I do? And I thought, you know what? I don't know what to do. But I better do something. So here's where my story gets really lame, you guys. I'm sorry to report to you. But what I did that morning is I picked up the phone and I called my mom. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I did. (laughs) I didn't know what else to do. What do you do? I said, Mom, you're not going to believe this. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> and she's like, no, sh- no kidding, James. And by the way, I believe it, you know. That was number one. And I, number two is I said to her, Mom, I want what you have. I want to be sober. She said, I've been praying for this day. I think you should go to AA. And I said, Mom, I don't want it that bad. And I hung up the phone. <laughs> Click. Don't tell me to go to AA. Don't you know who you're talking to? I did not want to come to Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm telling you, I did not want to do it. And anybody who suggested I come to AA, that was the end of that conversation. But I did kind of start attending meetings a little bit. And uh, I became what I like to call a fringe member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And some of us may have been fringe members, may still be, or certainly know those that are. And here's, here's how I was as a fringe member. I came to meetings late. I left early. I sure didn't get a sponsor. Didn't need that. Didn't get the big book. Didn't need that. And I'd come to meetings, and I'd sit in the back row. And the back row uh, that I sat in, present company excluded, by the way, was what my sponsor, Frank, called the shoe section. 
And he says, James, when you sit in the back row, it's the shoe section. It's where the uh, sneakers, the loafers, and the slippers sit back there. <laughs> and that's where I was sitting. Just waiting to pick up a drink, what it was. And here is really why I know I'm an alcoholic. <clears throat> I don't know how long it was, eight months, where I was a fringe member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that means I certainly wasn't working any steps, which means I was not treating my alcoholism with the solution. And here's how I know I'm an alcoholic. I got sicker and sicker. I had this idea that if you take alcohol away from an alcoholic, they get better. But I have since learned that is not the case for a guy like me. For this kind of alcoholic, if you take alcohol away from me and don't replace it with the solution, I'm going to get sicker. And I'll tell you why. For me, for this alcoholic, alcohol was never my problem. As a matter of fact, alcohol, not, not only was it not my problem, it was my solution to my problem. My problem is, is I can't live life on life's terms. Alcohol gave me the ability to live a little bit life on life's terms. And I, that day on January 3rd, alcohol was removed was not replaced with the solution, I got sicker and sicker. And at the end of that time, eight months, I thought I was either going to have to drink or I don't know what was going to happen. And then another miracle. This would be the second miracle happened in my life. And I don't take any credit for this, but here's how it went down. I was sitting at home, and a woman who was a sponsee of my mom's called me, Barbara. And she said, uh, James, I have called every woman I know, and nobody can help me. I have this woman that I sponsor. She needs to get to a meeting. Will you please take her? And I thought to myself, I don't want to do that. Why would I do that? Taking this stranger to an AA meeting is not going to help me at all. I have this serious problem in my life today. I don't know what that problem was, but I'm sure it was really serious. I got this really serious problem in my life. Taking this stranger to an AA meeting is not going to help. But I heard myself say something really weird. You know what I said? Yes, I'll do that. Why not? So I picked this uh, young woman up, and I took her to this AA meeting. And uh, here's what happened. We walked into this meeting, and there were these, this t these like, long tables end-to-end -end set up with chairs around them. And I took a seat, just sat down. And it just so happened I sat right across the table from the speaker that night. And here I was, eight months sober, which means dry as a bone, uh, going crazy, just about ready to pick up a drink. Fringe member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I sat there, and this uh, dude told his story. And for the first time in my entire life, I heard somebody tell my story. And that day, I joined Alcoholics Anonymous. And I've been a member ever since. And here's why I believe Alcoholics Anonymous works. This is it for me in a nutshell. This is my experience. And this goes back to something that my sponsor, Frank, used to tell me. He said, James, take actions contrary to how you feel. You want to know how AA works for me? I take actions contrary to how I feel. Don't want to take somebody to a meeting? Take them. Don't want to call my sponsor? Call them. Don't want to go to my home group? Go to my home group. Don't want to read that big book? Read that big book. Take actions contrary to how I feel. And what I've learned about uh, that is this. My, I'm an alcoholic. You want to know how I feel? Ask me 10 minutes later. It's going to be very different. <laughs> my feelings change every 10 minutes. I like that my feelings are up, and they're down, and they're up, and they're down, and they're up. And they're... If I took actions on my feelings, I'd be doing different things every 10 minutes. But in Alcoholics Anonymous, we don't take actions based on feelings. We take actions based on principles. 
And principles don't change. Principles don't change. So that day, I joined Alcoholics Anonymous, and I've been a member ever since. And I like to think of uh, my membership in AA with this analogy. I think that we're like a, a f- uh, we in AA are like a flock of sheep, right? And we're all time together, fellowshipping and everything. And over there is a wolf, alcoholism. And that alcoholism over there is hungry. And it's waiting for an alcoholic to pick off. <clears throat> now me, being in this flock of sheep, I feel like if I'm in the middle, I'm a bit safer than if I'm on the outside. Now that doesn't mean that I'm guaranteed sobriety today. That doesn't mean I can't be drunk tomorrow. But that means this, that if I stay in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous and I do the things that I've been taught to do in Alcoholics Anonymous, my experience shows that I can stay sober one day at a time. That's my experience. And I've been in the middle of AA since. And uh, uh, wow, what a life. So that all went down the summer of 84, and that was 31 years ago. And I got like 13 minutes left in my talk here to tell you what happened in 31 years. So here goes, right? Remember, I'm from Chicago. I can talk fast. So here we go. All right, so what, what happened? I was, uh, came to AA, was a college dropout. And uh, I got sober January 3rd, and January 20th or so, I was enrolled, uh, re-enrolled in uh, University of Texas at Arlington. Got sober in Arlington, Texas. And, uh, you know, I've heard in AA, don't change anything major for the first year. I'm sure glad I didn't hear that because I, I changed it fast. Okay, get sober, go back to school. So I went back to school and uh, graduated a few years later. And you know what I found out? That uh, sober and do the work, I make pretty good grades. And I graduated from University of Texas at Arlington with a degree and got me a job, and when I got a job, I became uh, self-supporting through my own contributions, which pleased my parents quite a bit. Then I uh, had this job, and I got uh, a call from this company in Illinois, and they said, James, we want to offer you this deal. You come work for us. Uh, We'll send you to a university in the area part-time, you can work part-time, we'll pay for your entire school costs, and we'll pay you a full salary. What do you say? And I said, hmm, let me think about it. So I went. And uh, that company sent me to uh, get my master's degree at Northwestern University, which simply means this. I'm educated beyond my intelligence. That's all that means. (laughs) And, uh, And how about them wildcats? That's all I got to say about that. Anyway... Uh, So I uh, landed in Evanston, Illinois, and I stayed until five weeks ago. And uh, got a degree, met somebody, fell in love, uh, got married, had babies, three of them to be exact. Uh, Those kids are now 22, 19, and 16. Uh, got unmarried, uh, (laughs) so let me tell you a little bit about my kids. I don't know why, I haven't talked much about this. I got a few minutes, I'm going to tell this story real fast. So Ryan was our first kid, and he was born in, uh, May of 93, and I remember my friend saying, uh, when my wife was pregnant. Do you want a boy or you want a girl? And I said, I don't care. I just want a healthy kid. And out came Ryan, and he was angelic looking. And he had this beautiful, well, he grew into this beautiful curly hair, and he had ten fingers, ten toes, and everything. was, was like, what a miracle. And I was so grateful. And I was about ten years sober, and we began noticing there's something about Ryan that's just not quite right. And that is he wasn't responding like other kids. 
And we took Ryan to the doctor, test after test, and then we learned something, and that was that Ryan was profoundly deaf. And I'm going to share this story with you because I need to tell you what kind of an alcoholic I am. Ten years sober. Now, the one thing I want to say very clearly about this, what I'm about to describe to you, my reaction was one born of ignorance. You hear me? Ignorance. Here's my reaction. God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this to me? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I do for you? I go to these meetings. I sponsor these guys. I do all this service work here at Evanston. I'm doing what you want, you know, what I'm taught to do in AA. Why are you doing this to me? And that is, uh, that's my alcoholism. My alcoholism is described very well in the big book. It's selfish, self-centeredness to the core. The root of my trouble is I am a selfish, self-centered human being. And my reaction to hearing about my son's deafness was not, what kind of life is he going to have, but rather, what does this do to my life? And I am ashamed to report this to you, but that is exactly how I reacted. And I say it was a reaction out of ignorance because I did not understand what deafness meant. I had this idea, I don't know where it came from, that Ryan's life would be one of isolation, limited, and uh, hard. And I am happy to report to you I was wrong. I'm very happy to report to you that. But when I heard about this, I had to get busy at Alcoholics Anonymous. And my sponsor had me just just start AA over, basically. And uh, it was some years later when I came to realize, this is when Ryan graduated from grammar school. Uh, I was the luckiest guy on planet Earth to have a kid like Ryan for a son. And he was 12 at the time graduating from grammar school. I didn't even know the kids graduated from grammar school, but there it was at Evanston. He was graduating from grammar school. And I remember like yesterday, the, the, um, the principal asked Ryan to get up on stage uh, while he was um, saying the kids' names who were walking across graduating. And he asked Ryan if he would get up on stage and fingerspell, sign their names. And so there was my kid, 12 years old, standing up on stage with the principal and his teachers, and he's participating, and that was my kid. And I tell you, I was so proud of him, I can't, I can't even describe to you how proud I was of him. Still am. Now, lest I forget, let me describe to him to you now. He's 22, and he is living the dream, let me tell you. He is a... Uh, He's going to be a senior at the Rochester Institute of Technology. Now, that's a school I couldn't get into. (laughs) He is studying civil engineering. And I remember uh, the first year of his school, he would ask me for help with his homework. I could help. I can't help him anymore. (laughs) I tell you, he's like, so can you help? I'm like, "Uh, no, sorry. He... uh, He just finished uh, summer internships with companies in uh, western New York. uh, He's traveled the world with his deaf friends. Last summer he was in, uh, I think last summer it was South America. The winter before that was Puerto Rico. The summer before that was Europe. And now he's making plans to go to Indonesia in January. How about that? And that, this is a kid who I thought whose life was over, whose life was going to be hard and limited and isolated. And this kid knows how to live life better than I do. And I wanted you to know this. He's the bravest person I have ever met. And the fact that not only that Ryan is my son, but that I even know him is a source of gratitude for me. He's a great kid. And uh, my middle son is Chris. He's 16. Sorry, 19. 
He is now a sophomore, or about to be a sophomore, at um, Lawrence University at Appleton, Wisconsin. How about that? And then my daughter Maddie is 16, and she is about to be a sophomore in high school. And these, uh, wow, what a gift. And while my kids have seen me be a jerk sometimes, there's one thing my kids have never seen. They've never seen their dad take a drink. And the fact that my kids have never seen me take a drink means I'm overpaid in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm overpaid. My life today is amazing. It's amazing. I'll describe it to you real quick. I uh, have a great job that I love. I've got the love of my kids and my family. And I uh, divorced about 65 years ago, and last year I met a girl. And uh, I like her so much, I left Chicago for Tallahassee, Florida. And so I live in Tallahassee now. And uh, her name is Jane, and she's going to be your Saturday night speaker. And she is the most remarkable person I've ever met. I've never met a human being like her. She is the most kind, loving, generous person I know. She is uh, funny. She is caring. She treats me better than anyone's ever treated me. And she's gorgeous. So, she's a bonus. So she'll be your Saturday night speaker. I can't wait to, for you to hear her. She's, uh, she's amazing. She's my favorite AA speaker I know. And uh, <laughs> I am her biggest fan. And, but I, but um, great job, loving my kids. Uh, new relationship. These are wonderful gifts of Alcoholics Anonymous. But the most important gift I've found here in Alcoholics Anonymous is this, a relationship with a God of my very own. And there's a line in our big book that says that uh, our stories disclose in a general way, not that line. It's um, the, our, our personal stories. These are the ones that are in the back of the book are by people who describe in their own words and from their own point of view how they establish their relationship with God. And I feel like that when I get up here to share, that's my job, to tell you how I establish my relationship with God. And the way I established my relationship with God was through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. When I was a little kid about this tall, I believed in God. I've always believed in God. However, the six and a half years that I drank... Those six and a half years, at the end of which, I had lost all connection to God. And I kind of imagine it as there's like this candle that's with it was inside of me, and that candle sort of blew out. It's like, well, it's gone. And um, what Alcoholics Anonymous has taught me is this. That candle never went out. That candle cannot go out, but it can get covered up. And for six and a half years of drinking, that's exactly what I did. I covered that up. And what Alcoholics Anonymous has been for me is what I heard a guy, Chuck Chamberlain, say, and that's this. That Alcoholics Anonymous is about uncovering, discovering, and discarding. And what I uncovered, when I uncovered what I found, what I discovered, that was God was always there. It was I who had left. He was always there. And I remember the moments, it was like, God, why did you... Where, where did you go? Why, where, why did you leave me? He never left. It was me who left. And Alcoholics Anonymous has given me that relationship. And that, uh, in our book, it says that uh, God as we understood him. And what that means to me is that I don't believe I can ever understand God. God's infinite. I'm not. But what I believe that means for me is this. I have to have a personal experience of God. And I experience God... Uh, because of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so the greatest gift you ever gave me was the gift that I never lost, but that I thought I had. And so not only do I thank you for my family, for my sobriety, and for the life I have today, the most important thing I thank you for is for reacquainting me with that power which has always been there. And I'll, uh, I'll end with this. I, uh, when I was 15 years sober, <clears throat> my life was real good. 
And uh, I didn't think it could get any better. And you know what? If my life hadn't gotten any better from there, I, I would have been all right. But what I did was I rediscovered a set of tapes I heard when I was brand new. That set of tapes is called A New Pair of Glasses by a guy named Chuck Chamberlain. And I remember driving my hour to work every day, and I swear to you, it was as if Chuck was speaking to me from, from beyond. And I, it's a little self-centered, I know, but that's how I felt. And I was driving my car, and it was as if he was talking to me. And there were so many things in those tapes that uh, uh, I resonated with. I'll, sh- I'll share this, and I'll sit down. He said this, that if you really work step three, I mean really work it, which is deciding to turn my will and life over the care of God, if you really work that step, then take, taking care of me is none of my business. That if I really work that step, I don't have to take care of me anymore. Now, that doesn't mean I don't practice self-care or eat right, exercise. That's not what I'm talking about. What I mean is I don't have to run my life anymore. I don't have to do it. That's God's job. That's not my job anymore. And he says, well, if, uh, if God's job is to take care of me, and that's not my job anymore, then the question is, what is my job? And I believe what he said on those tapes. He said this, my job is to help other of God's kids do what they need doing for fun and for free. For fun and for free. And that's what I try to do every day. And when I live that way, my life is real good. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I love being sober. I love you guys. Thanks so much for letting me be here. And that's all I got. Thanks. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.